This morning we'll be in Psalm 119, not the whole thing, which would be a very long Sunday morning, but uh, Psalm 119 verses 129 to 136. And today I want us to talk about something really important. We need to read the Bible, the reading plan on your on your seat and the email I'll send out uh, tonight or tomorrow, get that across really, really um, emphatically. We must read our Bibles. But today I want to ask us an important question. What is the best way to think of um, the scriptures? There's two that I'm going to talk about. Uh, way number one is to look at the Bible, to read the Bible, so as you're reading this year, uh, to read the Bible as a bunch of puzzle pieces that we look at really closely so we can sort it into the right buckets and categories of doctrine and things like that. The other way is to see the Bible as a telescope that we look through to see, know, and experience God. You might think, well, I think both of them are important. And they are, but one of them needs to take precedence. Which one is the best or most primary, most foundational way of reading the Bible? Different Christians are going to answer this in different ways. I, I promise you different Christians will answer this in different ways. Uh, depending, on where what, depending on the school a pastor goes to, he'll come out of there with a tendency toward one or the other, or even the pastor's personality, but it's really molded a lot by the school. And then the pastor will go to a church and impress that emphasis on a church over the course of years. Pastors are different and they focus on different things. Uh, those of you who are here when Pastor Paul was here know, if you, even if you haven't thought about it, as I mentioned it now, you'll realize I don't focus on prophecy as much as he does. Doesn't mean I don't like prophecy. It just means that it's not my emphasis. But for Pastor Paul, it was very important. And if you, if, as I say that now and you think about it, you can, hopefully you'll agree, I, I, we are different in that respect. I preached the whole book of Zechariah a year or so ago. How many, how many pastors do that? But even though I did that, it's just the way I talk about prophecy is not the same as Pastor Paul did. Because he comes at it from, not that we believe different things, but he, he frames things differently. Pastors frame this question differently, maybe not even consciously, but the way they explain the Christian faith and how the scripture works will usually tend toward one of these. And you yourself, as you think about the pastors you've sat under, churches you've been to, teachers who've been important to you in your own life, you may see yourself in one of these more than the other. God wants us to read our Bibles. It's the story of him revealing hidden things to us that we'd otherwise never know about why things are bad in the world, who we are, what our purpose is, how we can have hope, how things are going to end, the story of reality. It's all there, so we, we need to read it. So I'm begging us this year to read the scripture, to read, really read the scripture, so that through the Spirit we can, we can love God more. But how you answer this question or if you're online, this question. How you answer this question will determine what you think happens when you read your Bible. Only one of these answers should be the foundation. Which one is it? So we'll be in Psalm 119, verses 129 to 136. We're going to be there first, 
And then I'm going to talk about um, each one of these uh, possible paths. And then I'll close with um, a conclusion and uh, a plea for us to read our Bibles a better way. Maybe you're already reading it uh, the way I'm going to present is the best way. Um, but it'll be a plea to read our Bibles a better way. A better way. So Psalm 119, and we'll pop into Proverbs a little bit as well. Uh, let's pray and uh, we'll dive in. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Help us to know you more. Help us to love you more. Help us to help our relationship with you never to be cold and abstract, but living, warm, loving. Help us to see you as our Heavenly Father, not as a remote, um, not as a remote, um, distant, um, analytical being in the sky, but as our Heavenly Father who loves us, who cares for us, who loves us so much he sent his Son to come here to rescue us at the cost of his own life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Psalm 119, verses 129 to 136. Um, this won't take long to go through, but I, it's a good passage about Scripture. All of Psalm 119 is beautiful, long psalm about God's Word. So you should read the whole thing if you haven't read it before. It's broken into seven or eight uh, line sections according to the Hebrew alphabet. So it's, it's, it's broken up for you into nice chunks. But um, this is a good representative section about God's word and what it does for us. So when we talk about the two ways, we'll have something to, to anchor it in. But this is what it says, uh, Psalm 119, verse 129. Your statutes, the psalmist says, are wonderful, therefore I obey them. He loves God. And this is the attitude from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, that Jesus quoted in Mark 12. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, might. That's the, that's the bedrock of your relationship with God. Love God so that you'll want to do what he says. Your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. He delights to follow God's word. It makes him happy. It makes him happy. He says, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. What does that mean? Think about it. This is poetry. So I know we, some of us didn't like English class in high school. What's the meaning of this? And you're like, but so this is poetry. What's it mean as God's word unfolds, like unspools when we, when we read it and we ask for understanding? We read God's word. As it unfolds, it, it gives light. It shines light. It gives understanding to the simple, even normal people, people like you and me, not highfalutin people, just normal people like you and me. As we read the word, as we take it in and it unspools, it's as though it's shining light into our heart, into our mind, like it's, it's shining everywhere. It's illuminating what? Everything. Our, our wisdom, our insight, our, our everything about us. So we have insight, we have wisdom, we have we have love as, his, as we take his message and it unfolds in, before us, in our heart. The unfolding of your words gives light. You can spend a lot of time thinking about, what does that mean? 
And what kind of a relationship does it, does it imply about you and God? He says in verse 131, I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commandments. What, is that, what does that show about the guy's heart? Does it show like a Pharisee kind of heart, or does it show a very different kind of heart? It's a, he's getting at, he's getting at your, your attitude. He's getting at the heart of this psalmist. He, he wants more light. He wants more understanding. He wants more warmth. It's like a warmth of peace and everything that is God, this light flowing into him, giving me understanding, not just intellectual understanding, the two, na- the, the two nature Christology of the incarnation and why the canonic theory of the incarnation is wrong. Not that stuff, not, not this book stuff, but book stuff's important, but like warm light, knowledge, wisdom, relationship, that kind of thing is what's going on. And so I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. He, he wants to do what God says. Like when you, if for those of you who are married um, or about to get married, you know, when you're in love with the person, spouse, um, you, you want to do things for the person. And all your other obligations, they're somehow not as important anymore. And our relationship with God is not a love affair, but the essence of love, meaning you, you want to give yourself to someone else. That principle is still there. If you love God, you'll want to do what he says because you love him. This guy loves God, so he wants to do what God says. He longs for God's commands. Turn to me, he says. Turn to me and have mercy on me, as you always do to those who love your name. The guy wants to be a better child, a more obedient child. That's why he wants to, he longs for his commands. So you can take this like the Pharisees would, where it's really cold and um, just not very warm. Um, It's all about relationship with God is all about doing the right things. But as you read Psalm 119 and a bunch of other psalms, that's not the impression you get about why this guy wants to do what God says. Turn to me and have mercy on me, as you always do to those who love your name. That's, that's, what, that's the bedrock of this guy's relationship with God. He loves him. That's why he wants to do what he says, and he wants to imbibe his word and put it in his heart and, and all of that. That's why. He says, direct my footsteps, verse 133, according to your word, let no sin rule over me. He's saying, shape me as I read your word, as I hear it from the priests and and the prophets who are going around, as I hear the word and read it, shape me, direct me, point me. Uh, The word is transformative, not in an icy way. You know, not in the sense of just knowledge being brought in, you know, now I know the canonic theory of the incarnation. Excellent. You know, no, it's, it's not this book thing. Books are important. I have lots of books. I translated, for the sermon last week, I translated all of John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18 from Greek so I could understand the passage. I like books. I didn't tell you I did it, because, well, and I used the NIV for the preaching translation because it's not important. I just, 
I wanted to understand the passage. So books are good. I like books. Some people, some wives get upset because their husbands do all sorts, have all, all sorts of other weird habits, have car parts all over the garage. My wife gets frustrated because I have books. They're everywhere. So there's nothing wrong with books and knowledge, but this is not the plea of a guy who is only an intellectual. This is a guy who loves God and wants to love him more. There's warmth. Direct my footsteps. Let no sin rule over me, shaping me, direct me, rebuke me. We read 2 Timothy 3. Do all those things to me. Direct my footsteps. Redeem me, verse 134, redeem me from human oppression that I may obey your precepts. The people who stop me from obeying you, save me from them. Why? So I can be a better child. I can do things. Not just for the sake of doing them, so I have my checklist and I've done all these things, but because I want to be a better, a more obedient child. Redeem me from human oppression. He says, verse 135, make your face shine on your servant and teach me your decrees. What does this mean? Again, it's poetry. Make your face shine on your servant. What's that getting at? What do you guys think? What's it... What's it saying in poetic form? What do you think of when you hear about make your face shine? Our faces don't shine. What's he saying? Yeah, he's, he's getting at this idea of God. It's like he wants God to, to smile on him, to, to bless him. God, is, God, is, um, God has no physical form, but when he shows himself, it's this, this uh, cloud, this luminescent cloud, uh, the, 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 the burning bush. He shows himself to people in various forms, but one that's always there is this, this luminescent cloud. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about how Moses, after being with God on the mountain, when he comes down, it's as like there's this afterglow radiating from Moses because he was in direct contact with this, this luminescent cloud where God revealed himself. And it's this... And Jesus is the light of the world. You know, that, all of those images, those pictures that paint themselves in your mind. God, make your face shine on your servant. Look at me and smile your blessing upon me. Be happy with me. Be happy with me. Because I want to do all those, all those things that I've talked about. Teach me your decrees. Uh, tell me that I'm being a good child a good son, a good daughter. Make your face shine on your servant and teach me your decrees. It's not about the law. It's not about the rules. It's not about making sure I do everything the word says. It's the attitude that makes you want to do what God says. That's the heart of it. That's what Jesus told the Pharisee about, he, about Hosea chapter 6. You know, go and read what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. God doesn't want this rote, I have brought my offering on the 5th. I will bring another offering on the 15th. I will bring another one, if I have time, on the 30th. Three times a month, I am an excellent Hebrew. Not, no, no, it's do you love God? Where's your heart? And then you can do all those things because you love them, but you can't just do them just because. So that's, it's, it's the attitude 
not the outward action. It's the attitude that drives the action that, that is infusing the, everything the psalmist says. He says finally in verse 136, streams of tears flow from my eyes for your law is not obeyed. This isn't the cry of a legalist. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. There's a drum here. It's not that kind of attitude. It's an attitude of people don't love you and it makes, it makes me sad. I'm frustrated. Not because the rule wasn't followed, but it's the fact that so many people don't love you. St streams of tears, not, 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 not smoking rage, is flowing from his eyes. It's, he is upset. He's sad. For your law is not obeyed. Everyone's external. That's what he's looking around and saying. No one, no one cares, and it's sad. That's what he's saying. That's our text. And I want you to think of this attitude that the psalmist has. And we could have gone to a bunch of other places in Psalm 119, but I return to my question, how is the best way to think of the scriptures? A puzzle we look at to categorize knowledge, or a telescope we look through to see, know, and experience God? So that's what it wants to think about. And there's a spectrum here, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but I'm asking what is, which one should we trend toward? What should be the one that we most want to cultivate? So I'll talk about the first one, the Bible as a puzzle piece. The danger with seeing the Bible as a puzzle, you read a verse and immediately you think of what is the doctrine it's about? Where do I slot it in? Um, how does it relate to this passage and that passage? Um, what, you ha what could happen, I'm not saying that you do this, but I'm saying, and I'll give you examples to demonstrate, what can happen if you trend toward this is faith becomes mostly about intellectual knowledge. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus came here and was born of a virgin? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus died for our sins? Yes. And it just goes on and on. And if you answer yes to everything, then you're probably 95% of the way there. It's all, an, it's all about knowledge. And they would never say that. No one would ever say that, that. But the practical result is it's faith is a very intellectual thing. Bible study is like, uh, almost like an autopsy. I've been to an autopsy in the uh, military police. Really cold and dispassionate, scalpels slicing and pulling things out and poking them apart, and it's very clinical. The Bible becomes something you read for doctrine, for knowledge, not for love to grow closer to him. Despite all the caveats that they, they will give, of course we need to love God, and I know Jesus said that, and, but then they'll immediately just start talking about doctrine again. It's the focus it's not that they don't love God, but the focus can become mostly about doctrine, cold, cold stuff. I'm going to give you an example, just so you know I'm not trying to be mean. I'm going to give you an example from one theologian, and I want you to tell me how warm this is. He's, just, he's answering the question, what is revelation? What's God's revelation? This is Carl Henry. This is his answer. God's revelation is rational communication 
conveyed in intelligible ideas and meaningful words, that is, in conceptual verbal form. Isn't that warm? Is it warm? It's so cold. I like Carl Henry. I have lots of his books. I've learned a lot of stuff from Carl Henry. But he's one of those guys who trends more toward the Bible as a puzzle and you, to, to categorize into knowledge categories. And so to him, the most, the most important thing is that we must study our Bible. And it becomes, studying Bible's good, so that's fine, but it becomes this cold and clinical activity where the focus can become the Bible and Bible study and doctrines and slotting them into the right places and less about the relationship and love for Jesus that the scriptures talk about. And it's hard to distinguish between the two. What I'm saying is there is a difference in emphasis between the two and it's noticeable in the contrast between someone like Henry and someone else. So if you have someone who comes from this strain, who's taught by professors and schools that come from this general strain of Christianity, what you end up with often is a lot of, a lot of uncomfortable, uncomfortableness about things that can't be logically understood. Do, does Jesus reveal himself to Muslims in Muslim countries through dreams? Many people who trend toward the Bible as a puzzle piece for categorizing knowledge will not like that. And they'll be very uncomfortable. And they'll say, I don't think that that's valid because we must read the Bible to hear God, to see God's word so we know what's happening. And very skeptical of any supernatural event that ever happens. Very skeptical because to them, it's not rational. I mean, of course, they'll say, yes, the spirit is the spirit is living and present and active, all those caveats. But really, they do not like things they can't rationally and scientifically explain in a way like that. So when they talk about the Holy Spirit, many times people from this tradition will usually talk about what the spirit doesn't do. The Holy Spirit, he doesn't do this, he doesn't do that, he doesn't do that. We have to be careful here because of all the crazy people, and he doesn't do this, and he doesn't do... And at some point, they will talk about what he actually does do, but it's very defensive because there's a fear of things that are unexplainable. There's a fear of the supernatural, even though all the right things are said about the Spirit and can, God can do anything. In the end, a lot of uncomfortableness with non-logical things. So I'll give you an example so you think I'm not just being mean. I once had a professor, I once had a professor at seminary, and we're talking about Acts 17. Acts 17 is a beautiful passage. Paul is brought before all the, these people in Athens on Mars Hill, and he's asked, tell us about this, this weird guy who you're preaching about. And Paul he sees a statue, an idol to the unknown God, because it was a polytheistic society. So he just takes that thing that he saw, and then he launches and starts talking about God in a really general way. And he keeps narrowing and narrowing, and he, he starts to get to the gospel, but then he's interrupted because they, they're, they're angry about what he's saying. And so we got to Acts 17, and the professor said, decided to spend 30 minutes talking about a theory that someone had about how Act, First Corinth, the book of 1 Corinthians is Paul's apology 
for the bad way he presented the gospel in Acts 17. He spent 30 minutes talking about this. And I interrupted at one point and I said, I was probably mean, but I said, I think anyone who believes that needs to get out of the library and get a life. And I mean, the, the reason why I said that was like, what does that have to do with loving God? This is a cold dissection of the, there's nothing there that says anything like that in 1 Corinthians. Why are we even talking about this? And he said, well, I, he was upset, which he, he had a right to be. I should, have been, I should have said the same thing in kinder words. But I said, he said, I think you're being cavalierly dismissive. There are good reasons to think that's true. But the reason why I asked is we had two really different ways to think of the Christian faith. His was the Bible was something to be sliced apart, um, picked at, examined really scientifically and really critically. And where do I slot this in? I trended more toward, when we read this, what does it tell us about how we need to know Jesus, how we need to know his plan is working in the world, what we need for our Christian life? Two totally different ways we'll look at the same text and go into totally different directions. How does asking that question help us to love God more? Because the text says nothing about any of this, there or in 1 Corinthians. Did, Acts, did Luke write Acts 17 so we could sit here puffing our pipes and asking this question, discussing it for almost an hour? Is that why Luke wrote Acts 17? So I was frustrated, and that's why I responded that way. Like, this is an academic discussion. has nothing to do with real life or real people who have real problems. Real faith has nothing to do with that. It doesn't mean anything. The Bible becomes a body that you're slicing and poking at, reading the Bible for knowledge. Where do I slot this in? It's cold and clinical, and there's not a lot of love which is why Jack Nicholson is, is frozen. The second example I'll give you, these are all examples that I've, I've seen. Um, this one was very upsetting to me. A professor in a class was discussing the problem of evil, which is a real problem. Why do awful things happen? And a classmate who is a pastor, like me, brought up um, someone in his church who'd been abused, sexually abused. And... Um, was who used to be in his church who who'd left church and said that she she couldn't be part of a church anymore um, because she suffered sexual abuse when she was a teenager and the woman said the woman told the pastor the classmate you know i i can't imagine if god ever saved that guy i could never share heaven with him and i i don't she couldn't she 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 was hurt right she wouldn't she she couldn't imagine that god would ever save him because he did so much evil to her. And what did our professor say? The professor said, at the root of, her, of what she's saying is her attitude is, I'm more righteous than God, so I can make, I'm in a better position to make a decision about that person's fate. That's what the professor said after hearing this story. And I said, maybe she's just really hurt. Maybe... We don't need to go in this cold, icy direction and talk about how there's an idol in her heart about how she thinks she's more righteous than God. Maybe she's really hurt. Who would have thunk it? Maybe that's all that's going on. Maybe she's hurting and needs Jesus. 
to comfort her. Maybe that's all that's happening here. Maybe you should read Job and see how he was hurting too. But to the professor, there wasn't a person there. There's only icy logic, a remorseless conclusion based on a theology book. He, was, he didn't see a person who was hurting. He saw a problem to be slotted into a doctrinal list. And there's a big difference between reading the Bible that way. So the more you read the Bible as a selection, you read the Bible and you're like, where does this go? Where does this go? Where does this go? And you, the more you read it like that, the more you can tend towards something like that. The other way you can read the Bible, which, spoiler alert, this is, the best, this is the better way I think you can read the Bible, is that the Bible is a telescope. What is your relationship, is your relationship with God more about love or about knowledge? What is the basis? Which one's the most important? And I've said this before. Now there's a continuum. You need to love God and you need to know stuff about him. It's kind of important to know stuff about God. So there's a ditch at either end. At the, at the ditch of love, God is just jello, mushiness and happiness and heart emojis flowing everywhere. So there's danger going there. But on the other side, God is Iceman. You know, cold, icy, like a Puritan. You know, very just, I mean, just ice cold. Like Schwarzenegger from that bad Batman movie. Just icy. So you, need, you do need to love God and you need to know God. But you'll always trend toward one or the other, which I said. And which one you trend toward is going to impact the way you read your Bible. So the attitude, the attitude you have when I'm asking you to read your Bible this year, when you look at your purple reading plan, or you look at your own from your Bible app, or you pick one from the list I'll send out today. When you read your Bible, the attitude you have will betray what you think is the foundation of your relationship with God. It's got to be love. That's what Moses said. That's what Jesus said. Love. Love will produce knowledge and it will produce right behavior, more or less, as you grow. But love produces right action and right knowledge. You'll want to know more, you'll want to do, because you love. But if your foundation about relationship with God is about love, then your attitude will tend more toward, how does this help me see and know and love God more? As you read Genesis 5. How do I, how does this help me know and love God more? That'll be the, the attitude you bring to the scripture. If knowledge is the way you think of a relationship with God, things I know, you'll tend to think of the passage as a puzzle piece to be slotted in somewhere. One of these looks through the Bible like a prism or a telescope. You read the Bible so you can look through it to see God who gave it to us, Jesus, the Messiah, his love, his sacrifice, his desire for us to look like him and be like him. You'll look through the Bible to see Jesus. So he changes you. The other one, you look at the Bible. And no matter what you say, you tend to not go much further than that. You just look at the Bible. If you think faith is mostly about information about Jesus, you'll tend to stay in the knowledge camp and look at the Bible. So let me make this, let me give an example, and we're, we're nearing the end, so, so have, have faith. 
Let me give an example. Uh, the problem is, is that we miss the point. You're confusing the tool with the goal. I worked hard on this meme. I really like it. I think it really gets things across well. So let me give you an example. I love espresso because I was stationed in Italy for several years. So we have an expensive espresso machine. What's more important? What, what is my focus? Is it the machine that gives me the espresso or is my focus the espresso? It is the espresso. Okay, I must have the espresso. And someone could say, yeah, but without the machine, you wouldn't have the espresso. And I will say, yeah, but the point is the espresso. It's a great machine. It's the best machine. But it gives me the espresso. That's why it's, that's what it's for. I want the espresso. I don't want to stare at the machine. When I took our son to the airport this morning and left at 2.30 in the morning, I wanted the espresso. I'm grateful for the machine because it gives me the espresso. You might say uh, you have the difference between a phone and a conversation or the video call nowadays. Um, the phone is important, but only insofar as it actually lets me talk to the person or else the phone really becomes useless at that point. And you could say, well, without the phone, you wouldn't be able to have the conversation. And I'll say, yeah, but I want to have the conversation. That's the phone's purpose. It connects me so I can have the conversation. Telescope versus the galaxy beyond. Excuse me, the galaxy beyond. Isn't this telescope amazing? It's the best telescope I've ever looked at this feature, that feature. It's the best. It has the best tripod, the best lens. I have a special carrying case so it never gets damaged. And like, that's, I'm glad, but I'd like to look at Mars. Right? I want to look through the telescope because what's out there is really what I want to look at. I'm glad it is the best telescope, but its job is to point me so I can see out there. The scripture is a telescope. We're not looking at it like a puzzle piece. Does it fit here? No, it's not. It's one of those, it's not a corner piece, and I have to try and figure out where it fits. We're not looking at the Bible. We're looking through it so as we read the text and think about it and pray and we try and figure out what it means so we can be connected to God, so we can see him and experience him and love him. And there's a difference between those two ways. And I'm, I've tried to explain it, and I hope it's getting across. The Bible is best seen as a telescope. It lets us see, know, and experience God. It channels God by the power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't exist for its own sake. Its only job is to provide a scope for us to look through so as we read the text and we see what God has done and what he has for us, we, we see God and we experience him and we love him more by the power of the Spirit. We don't look at the telescope. We look through it to see the heavens. You look through your Bible to see God. You don't just look at it as a puzzle piece that you can put together in a rational form. It's good to put stuff together in a rational form, but never at the expense of seeing the Messiah, the Savior, the love that God has that's at the root of this relationship that he's asking for. So I'll show you three examples, and then I will wrap up um, from other places in the Bible. If you've been to Awana, you know this verse, Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a light for my feet, is a, is a lamp for my feet. I slipped into the um, King James almost. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path.
A light that does what? The word is a lamp. What's it do for you? Points you where to go so you can get to God. It shows you the way. The point is not the lamp. The point is, is that it lights the way so you can get to where you're going. It's a tool that tells you where to go and makes sure you don't wander off into a swamp and be eaten by an alligator, but it's, it's not the thing. It gets you to the thing, which is God. Proverbs 20, 27, this is a really powerful one. And you have to think about them for a while. And the more you think about them, the more powerful it becomes. Um, the human spirit is the lamp of the Lord that sheds light on one's inmost being. So your spirit, your soul, is a lamp, has no light until God comes in and lights it. And then it sheds light on your inmost being. It illuminates you. Spiritual understanding, wisdom, salvation, um, understanding. It, it, it illuminates everything. Now, as you think about this, which model does this seem to fit? The Bible is a puzzle piece where we read John chapter 3, verse 16, and instead of thinking about God has great love, you immediately start thinking about this supports the Calvinist position because the King James translation of whosoever is actually incorrect, and it actually means the one who, so therefore it supports the Reformed position, and Armidians are wrong. That's the first thing you think of when you read that passage? That's not love. You've slipped into the icy category, and you need to pull back and think about the Savior who loves you. The human spirit is a lamp of the Lord. He wants to illuminate us. We read the scripture, and the light bulb comes on. Not, the not simply the intellectual light bulb of slotting in something into a category, but love, belonging, togetherness. He illuminates your heart, your life, your mind. That's not a cold thing. This is not one of those, those, um, um, those bright white lights. It's a warm, soft yellow light. Last one. Psalm 19.8. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. God's commands shine. That's what radiant means. That's what... Um, that's what Charlotte had. Uh, that's what Charlotte wrote on her web. Radiant for who was the pig's name in the then the in the Wilbur? Yeah, she wrote radiant. It means shining. the The commands of the Lord are radiant. They give light to the eyes. What does that mean? It enlightens you. It illuminates you. So you can do what? So you can see God. So you can see God. So this is what I'm saying in the end. Read the scriptures with an attitude of love. That's what I'm asking you to do as I plea for everyone to commit to reading your Bible this year. Read the Bible to know God, not just to know stuff about God. Read the Bible to love God, not to love facts about God. Read the Bible to go closer to him in relationship, not to picket scripture with tweezers in your lab coat. Last example I'll give. Another professor I had at seminary said that he doesn't believe that the Spirit gives us understanding when we read the Bible. 
He doesn't believe that. He said, I don't want to say the Spirit gives us understanding because that's extra revelation and the canon is closed. And so he doesn't give us understanding. He makes us, he gives us the ability to receive the text as it is. And I said, are you telling me you never pray to understand the Bible? And he said, well, he didn't want to say it because he falls into the knowledge camp and it's all a puzzle piece. And if it's the spirit illuminating things is not rational. It's, you can't explain it. It can't be dissected. So he didn't like it. So instead of admitting that, I, that the Bible, the, the spirit does give us understanding so we can understand the, the word and see and experience God through it. He's like, no, it, it lets me, it gives him the ability to accept it as it is. What does that even mean? That's a book answer. What do you actually do? Because to him, it, uh, he wasn't comfortable with saying that because he fell into that ditch. We need to read our Bibles the right way. I like my espresso machine, but only because through it, I see and experience and love my espresso. The Bible, we love our Bibles, but only because it's a telescope through which we see, know, and love God. The Bible in your hands is God's divine means to an end, relationship with him. You read your Bible so you can grow closer to him. You read your Bible so he can correct you. You read your Bible so he can rebuke you. You read your Bible so he can teach you through the Spirit and grow closer. It's not a cold thing. So attitude to have when you read your Bibles. Don't read your Bible without heart. Ask yourself, does this passage, how does this passage help me to love God more? to think and live more like Christ, to love others more, to know God more. Did God give you Genesis 6 so you can spend hours discussing who the sons of, uh, whether, whether fallen angels were cohabitating with women or whether it was uh, Cain's, uh, Cain's children? Did God, it's an interesting question, but did God give you Genesis 6 so you can obsess over this question? No. Not saying it's, a silly question. I'm saying on the scale of importance, it's not important. You're reading the Bible for pure knowledge. What does it teach us about God and his plan and his love, his mercy? All of these things, two different ways to read the Bible. Read the scriptures in 2022 in a dedicated and determined way, but read them with an attitude of love, not the attitude of a mortician. So that through the scriptures, you can see, experience, and love God. If you fall behind on a Bible reading plan, who cares? Just start on the day you're there. But I missed five days. It doesn't matter. God does not care. Just read the scriptures so God can speak to you, to us. That's God's plea uh, today. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Help us to know you more, to love you more. Help our love for you be the foundation of our relationship. Help us to do everything because we love you. Help us to read the scripture so we can see and know and love you more. And help us never to be cold and clinical in our relationship with you, but to remember the love your son has and the love we ought to have in return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.